Good morning. Years ago, when I was younger and a greater risk taker, I asked for an illustration from the floor, and I was tempted. I thought about it this morning, about asking for somebody to volunteer their most humorous uh, shortcut story. And I'm not going to do that because I'm a coward, but... I will say that I need one to put in print, and so if you have a a taking a shortcut story, I would love to uh, share it with a few other uh, select people. Although I did notice that when I looked up on the internet, I looked up shortcuts, I found a number of examples. A 69-year-old man was trying to take a shortcut off a, 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 through a river to get to his house. He sunk waist deep in the mud, and they had to haul him out. There was a 20-some-year-old young man uh, on a mountainside in Alaska, and uh, he decided to take a shortcut, and they had to send in helicopters and rescue crews to get him off the cliff that he was stranded on. And uh, then there were the uh, marathon races. I found a number of instances in the Boston Marathon and other marathon races where they discovered that some of those who had come through with shining colors had also taken a shortcut along the way. Um, That's not too surprising. And then I read, I'm glad I don't live there, about the big, huge dam that's being built in China and the concerns that there are shortcuts being taken there as well. So shortcuts are a way of life, and uh, we want to talk about that. By the way, I've given a fair bit of thought to my title. I wish I could share with you all of the ones that got rejected, but you probably don't want to hear them. This one's called Cutting Corners, Naomi's Undercover Operation. Now, you have to read that in the light of the corners of the field. She does cut corners, uh, and, and he does not. But anyway, you can play that out as you see the message develop. I call this tap dancing around the threshing room floor. Never in my life have I seen such fantastic efforts to get Naomi off the hook for this scheme. I tell you, there are all kinds of of things and explanations. There must have been some tradition and whatever. And I got to say to you folks, don't try. Don't try. I don't care what period in history, I don't care what culture it is, if you don't see a strong sexual Hollywood possibility in this text, then you are closing your eyes. There's just no way to get around it. And that is a part of the tension of our text. Just let it be what it is, and don't try to somehow sanctify things that probably shouldn't be messed around with. And the hermeneutical approach that I have to this text, all I would say is this. I am not willing, and, and this is kind of a bias of mine, but I am not willing when I come to scriptures to look around and to say, well, there is this historical fact, there was this piece of information. It's not in the Bible, but now we've discovered this information which gives us a whole new insight onto this text. I don't go that way. I take the text for what it says, And I take other biblical texts as all that I need to explain the text. So when I try to deal with this text, I'm going to be looking at other texts. And there aren't a lot of them uh, in terms of the the whole issue at hand here of the Redeemer. There is uh, Genesis chapter 38 where you have uh, Judah and Tamar. 
uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25 with the uh, Levirate marriage, Leviticus chapter 25, the redeeming of property, and then uh, in the book of uh, Ruth, and also uh, an interesting uh, text in Jeremiah where Jeremiah redeems a piece of property that belongs to a relative that is an evidence of his faith in what God is going to do in the future. And the text that we read this morning, that Dave read this morning from Ezekiel 16. Did you notice? Two citations, two references from Ruth chapter 3 in that text. So there are not many texts, but I let those be our guide as we come to it. I might suggest to you also that as a backdrop to our text, you keep in mind this is the period of the judges. And go back in your mind to the, the, the time in Judges when you come to the story of Samson and Delilah. If you want a backdrop against which to see Ruth and Boaz, think Samson and Delilah. It's just like black on white or vice versa as you look at those and it may help you to see the text in a somewhat different light. Now, the structure of our text, well, it's it's really a simple division. You have verses 1 through 5, which I call Naomi's proposition, and that is the plan that she sets forth, and then you see it executed in verses 6 through 16, or maybe 15, depending on how you divide that. And then you see that final report where uh, Ruth comes back and reports to Naomi the status of how things are. So let's take a look, first of all, at, uh, at those first five verses, uh, Naomi's proposition. And you see the, the, the first two sentences are really, or, or the first two verses are really uh, phrased in the form of a question. If it's not in the form of a question in your text, it should have been. But there are two questions, and it's, it's her mother-in-law's way. It's really the question is, do mother-in-laws have the right to meddle? Or... Are mother-in-laws rightly matchmakers? So her question is really her going to the, to the question of, do I have a right to propose this plan and meddle in your life to get you married? And, and so she says, first of all, in effect, you know, am I not your mama? And do I not have your welfare at heart? And therefore, do I not have the right to look out for you and get you a husband? Now, I know that's a paraphrase, but that's the essence of it. And, and, and by the way, implied in that is, I'm only looking out for you, kid. You know, I'm just, I'm just in this because I really care about you. Now, this is the first time in the book of Ruth I've ever seen that coming out of Naomi's mouth. It may be true. But it seems to me that you also have to say that whatever is for Ruth's benefit is also for Naomi's benefit. And so this is not exactly one of those pristine examples of selfless service where she doesn't get anything out of the deal. She probably gains too. But she says, anyway, the first question, do I not have the right to help you? And then the second question is, is it Boaz the best candidate on the horizon? You know, she says, you know, here, look, this is Boaz. You've already met him. Who's better than he? Now, we're going to find out. There is an answer to that, and it isn't her answer, and that is there's a closer kin. But what she said is, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, and we've got this guy on our sights, and so let's go for him. And the third thing, not phrased as a question, third thing she says is, it's harvest time, and he's going to be on the threshing room floor tonight. Paraphrase, 
It's Miller time. Now, that's really, when you go back to Genesis 38, I know it's sheep shearing time, but it doesn't matter whether you're fleecing the flock or whether you're doing the grain. When you come to harvest, that's the time at which you have celebration. You have, as it's clear, you have the drinking of wine and people get happy. And what she's saying is, this is his weakest moment. We know that this is going to be the time, if he's going to get in trouble, it will be now. And, and so it's, uh, it's the harvest time. This is a great opportunity. It's a fortuitous thing. Okay, that's the way that she uh, sets forth her basis, and then she has what I call how to catch a kinsman. And now she lays out this plan. But Ruth is to go uh, in the evening, and she is to, to uh, come to the threshing floor where they will be threshing the grain, and she is to hide herself, and she is to wait until after there has been the eating and the drinking that has taken place. By the way, I, I don't know how you get around the fact that it's saying when his heart was merry, come on, folks, he had a couple of too many. I, it, she, the whole issue is, is your judgment impaired? And it seems to me that that's one of the things that's involved in this sale, so to speak, is get him in a weak moment, impair his, his thinking, and think, by the way, Lot's daughters, impairing, as it were, their father's moral thinking, and that's how Moabites came about in the first place. So wait until he has drunk well, until he's happy or merry, and then... Uh, you uh, spot where he goes and chooses to lie down, and then, in effect, in a clandestine way, when nobody's looking, then you go and you crawl under the covers with him at his feet. Again, I don't think I need to say any more. Anybody that can't figure out that plot is really in trouble, in my mind. Uh, in terms of what Naomi envisions as taking place. Now, that's the plan, and Ruth, I think, uh, is persuaded to follow the lead of Naomi. Uh, and so she says, all that you have said, I will do. I'm not sure I would have said that or that I should have said it if I were in Ruth's place. But I want you to notice that everything Ruth and Boaz do in the midst of that rather slippery setting, everything they do is pious. There is not one thing that you could say there is some kind of a moral uh, tripping up. There's some kind of moral lapse in their behavior. And in fact, what happens as I see it is this plan that has been set forth is a second-class plan. It is a moral shortcut, if you would. And yet the way in which Ruth and Boaz carry out their roles they come out of this looking so good. It, it's, it, it, if you like warm and fuzzy feelings, you read this text because you come away saying, that is the way a story ought to end, isn't it? It's a great story because of the way in which they, they, comment, they uh, carry out and conduct themselves. Okay, so a little closer look at Naomi's plan. And by the way, this plan, she could work for a New York advertising firm. Could she not? I mean, she could sell marriage like she could sell toothpaste. One, accentuate physical attraction. I mean, folks, take a bath, 
put on perfume, put on your nice dress. I don't know what that means to you, but it all looks to me like this is the way in which you sell an idea or a plan. Catchimity's most vulnerable moment, that is, you don't go to your the, the strengths, but you go to that point in time when judgment might be more hasty and uh, and things are done or decided that probably wouldn't have been in some other moment. Appeal to his physical appetite and then do whatever he tells you. Well, I don't think we need to go over that again, but it just sounds to me like a little problematic. And so I asked the question, what's wrong with this picture? And let me suggest some things. One, it's done in secret when righteous things are done in public. It's done in secret when righteous things are done in public. Look at Deuteronomy 25. It's a public process, this matter of the Redeemer uh, or the Levirate marriage. This is a public process. Look at Proverbs chapter 7 and Proverbs chapter 8. Now you have folly and, and wisdom contrasted, and, and folly is portrayed as a harlot, and wisdom is portrayed as, as a, a magnificent woman of virtue. But notice in Proverbs 7 that Madame Folly is whispering in the dark, right? Chapter 8, wisdom is doing what? Shouting in the streets. Folks, you don't do your best wisdom work in the middle of the night under the covers. That's just the way it is. So it's done in secret rather than in public. By the way, those of you who have been watching the political scene, you might be saying amen to that. The best political actions are not done in back rooms. They are done in public. And you ought to be proud to, uh, to see the results of that if it is done in the right way. Okay, it's number two, it's godless. I, I say that in this sense. Never does she mention God. Never does Naomi mention God in her proposal. Do you notice that when Ruth responds and when Boaz responds to her it's got God written all over it but it's not in the proposal that she makes it appeals to baser instincts and desires and I say it seeks to entrap in this way when you have I think I don't know what Texas law is but when somebody comes to your door a salesman comes to your door and sells you a vacuum cleaner you have three days to think about it Three days in which you may reverse your deal. Folks, when you consummate a, a sexual union, you don't back out of the deal. So in other words, there is a decision that is going to be pressed uh, toward, Boaz is going to be pressed to make a decision with respect to Ruth. And once he takes action in the way it's assumed he will take action, there is no second, there's no getting out of it. So in other words, he's not given time to think about it in a way that gives you some rational ideas. He's, he's persuaded to make a quick emotional decision and, and uh, then it's something that cannot be reversed. Number uh, five, it ignores and avoids the nearest kin. It's very interesting to me that when you look at the text in verse uh, two, she says, and now is not Boaz our kinsman. Now, in the New American Standard Version, it says acquaintance. And when I looked that up in a lexicon, it says, 
a distant relative, a distant relative. Now, that's a Freudian slip on Naomi's part, because what's going to be argued when you get down to verse 9 is that he is a close relative, and he is, but the point is there is a closer relative. So from that point of view, you can't look at Boaz as the closest relative. And so there is, there is a way in which the opportunity for that closer relative is going to be, is going to be cut off. There's no opportunity in this plan to give the nearest relative the opportunity to do the right thing. In my opinion, that's not a good call at all. It doesn't appeal to take moral high ground. And, and, and that's the thing I love about Boaz. Boaz is going to say there is moral high ground here. We're not taking any steps further until that nearest of kin has had his opportunity. And when he goes, I'm cheating, but I'm going to chapter 4. When he goes to that nearest kin, what he doesn't say is, you don't want to have Ruth as your wife, do you? He, he gives him every opportunity to do the noble thing. I don't see that in the proposal that Naomi has made. Seven, it risks the reputation of two godly people. Folks, he's going to say in verse 14, do not let it be known, not that you were here, do not let it be known that a woman was on the threshing floor tonight. Why do you think that is? Because for any woman to have been there, it would have been assumed to be immoral. That was a man's working place, folks. That was, granted, there were men and they were, they were eating their meal and they were drinking their wine, but it was not a time for women to be there. Had anybody seen Ruth together with Boaz on that threshing floor, whether they did anything wrong or not, it would have been assumed. It would have been assumed. Would, would you not have made that assumption? given where it was. So in a sense, she is putting both Ruth and Boaz in a vulnerable situation where it could easily appear that they had done wrong. I mean, just suppose that rather than Boaz being startled in the middle of the night and waking up and finding this woman at his feet, suppose one of the other workers was startled in the middle of the night and all of a sudden, look what he sees. It puts their reputation at risk, it seems to me. Eight, I got this thanks to Dave and his reading of Ezekiel chapter 16 today, this morning in our worship time. It isn't on your notes, by the way, and it isn't on the screen, so you'll just have to take it from me. It wrongly implies that she should have initiated what he should have done as a leader. In other words, Naomi's inference in all of this is if you want to be saved, you need to initiate it. Now, the emphasis we were talking about this morning was that our salvation comes at God's initiative. He is the leader. He is the redeemer. He is the one who should have taken the initiative. But the inference is, if you don't take the initiative, it won't be done. And what I notice in that text in Ezekiel is, you notice that it's the same language that she uses? Put your, uh, put your wing or your covering over me. Now that expression is used. And the interesting part of that is that it's later, of course. Ezekiel's written later. But he chooses to use Ruth's words 
to describe what God has done to save Israel. That God has put his cloak, his protection over Israel. That is his action. So in a sense, what Ruth is going to do is to appeal to Boaz. Will you be to me as God is to Israel? And it's God who takes the initiative in that. It's not It's not man, and it's not, in that sense, Ruth, who would ideally do so. Nine, it assumes the end justifies the means. Bottom line, it's pragmatic. It's so important that you gain a husband and a redeemer that it's really not important how you get there. What's interesting is when we get through with chapter four, the end will be reached, but not through these means. It is not through the means that was, that was assumed that would happen, but rather through the public means that uh, Boaz would take shortly. All right. Let's look at the uh, godly conduct in a compromising situation now as this thing works out. There is the execution of the plan, and that is Ruth does, as Naomi has suggested, she goes, she hides herself out, she waits until the men have drunk and their hearts are merry, and, and then she waits and she sees uh, Boaz lie down. Providentially, he lies down at a distance from the other men. That's not an accident, folks. Suppose that he had, li- had lain down right by the other men then, of course, this whole series of events could not have happened. He lays off to the side at the uh, one side of the heap of grain and apparently with sufficient privacy for things to be conducted as they were. She then slips under the blanket at his feet. Now, there are those who would say that she's laying side by side. I, I, don't, I don't read the text that way. I see it that She is on one side of that bed. It's like a husband and wife had a fight or something. She's on one side and he's on the other. And and there is not the close proximity. Now, that may not have been what the plan was. It is the way that it was executed by Ruth and honored by Boaz. But he suddenly awakes and now he knows there's... And let's face it, folks, you wake up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden you're saying, I'm not alone in this sleeping bag. And, you know, something's not right. And, and it, it, as I read the text, he sits up, he looks at her at his feet and, and, and says, as you would expect and hope, who's there? And that's the point at which Ruth responds. Boy, I love, I love her response. I mean, when you think about how this thing could have gone down, she basically says, I am Ruth, your servant. She chooses an interesting word here, not the lowest word for servant that she's used before, but one that would uh, indicate that she is eligible to marry. And she says, I am Ruth. And then she says, spread your garment, your covering over me, put your wing over me, so to speak, for you are our nearest kin. Where does she get that? Where does she get that? I would suggest, A, she gets it from chapter 2 and verse 11, where he has said to her, you have come, bless you woman, you have come to Israel and you have embraced Israel and you have sought refuge under his wings. She now picks up that same word 
from his words in chapter 2, verse 11, and she says, Would you be to me what God is to me and to Israel? Would you put that protection over me in a personal way? Now, that is a call for him to do the highest and most noble thing he could do. That may not have been the plan so far as mother-in-law is concerned, but it is what she says. It is the most noble thing anybody could say or ask for. And my friend, I think she has her theology down better than most Israelites of that day or most any other. She really had it right. And she was asking him to simply be God-like to her and to bring her under his protection because he was, so far as she knew, the closest kin uh, to him. Oh, by the way, I should say this. When she asks him to do this, and when she acts in this noble way, she is acting in a way that is consistent with what she has already started to do when she left Moab. Think about this. She is asking an older man, and this doesn't pass Boaz by without, without note, she is asking an old man to marry a young woman. And he's going to be quick to say, you know, there are a lot of good-looking young hunks out there that would have been a lot better candidates for a husband than me if you're looking at this from a physical point of view. But he says, you've chosen me. But you see, when she was in, in Moab, she made the choice not to go after one of those Moabite studs, but rather to identify with the God of Israel and probably not marry at all. And what I'm saying to you is this. Decisions that we make earlier in our life often pave the way for decisions we will make later in life. So this is not the first time that she has acted in a godly way. She is acting in a consistent way with how she has acted before. Now, here's the thing that I notice. Boaz's response is an instant word of blessing. Now, look at the compromising, questionable circumstances, and yet he says to her, God bless you, woman, for what you've done. Now, why does he do that? Let me suggest several things. One, previous experience with Ruth. He's responding to Ruth in chapter 3, partly on the basis of what he's already heard about her in terms of her actions in the past with her mother-in-law, and what he has seen of her in chapter 2. Now, I would suggest, and I'm not going to overwork the work ethic, but one of the things he's seen in her is her work ethic. He's seen a woman who rose up early, who worked late, and who worked hard. And what he's saying is all of this she did, not for herself, but for her mother-in-law. He recognizes from what he knows of her, she is a noble woman. He's already experienced her in that sense in the past. Two, Love, and I mean that love in in the uh, not utterly platonic sense, but not in the Hollywood romantic sense. First Corinthians thirteen says, "Love believes all things. Love believes the finest things. It does not cynically assume the worst. It desires to believe the best, and that's what he believes of her." But thirdly, try this on for size: purity. Purity, and I'm talking about his purity. For, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. Isn't it interesting that a righteous man 
assumes the righteous things, and especially of a woman he has already seen to be righteous. He assumes the best, not the worst. And, and last, humility. Proverbs says, humility is the beginning of wisdom. He has no misgivings about who he is. All right, I'll translate. I'm an old coot. You're a young chick. Isn't that what he says? In effect, I'm an old duffer. Why would you have picked me? He doesn't have inflated views of his greatness or his desirability as a husband. What he's saying is there are a whole lot better options out there than me if you are looking on the physical side. But you have chosen the best. You have chosen what's right. So he immediately responds then with this word of blessing and acceptance. But he says to her then, here's the fly in the ointment, verses 12 and 13. There's only one problem. There is a nearer kin. I cannot believe Naomi did not know that. I cannot believe she did not know it. Folks, you're talking about close kin. Maybe her husband's brothers. You just can't not know it. And so there's an end run that's being done here, or attempted at least, to go around whoever this other fellow is and go to Boaz. And I can understand why. But the law made it clear. This is the way it ought to be. And he says, listen, before this thing goes any further, we have to settle this. We have to settle it in broad daylight at the city gate in a way that is honorable and noble and gives that man his option of doing the right and godly thing. And so he says, in effect, if that man chooses not to exercise his right, I will. But he gets first chance. And so everything from this point on, he protects her virtue. He protects her reputation. He goes about this in a way that makes it easy, as easy as it can be, for that man to make the right decision and for the right thing to happen. But it is clear he would love to fulfill that role, and he certainly will if he can. So you have that private parting in verses 14 and 15, where basically he says to her, lay down and go to sleep. Now you may ask yourself, why in the world would he do that? Well, How's she going to get home at that hour of the night? He's looking out for her safety, folks. He's looking out for her. If he were to walk her into town and you see, you see them walking through town at that hour of the night, that's not going to go well. The safest course of action was for her to spend the night at his feet. And then in the morning, in darkness, before anybody was awake and would know she'd been there, then she was to leave. And that's why he gives the exhortation. Don't let anybody know that a woman has been here. That would be immediately presumed to be something that was morally uh, challenging. So he, he loads her up. Boy, this is not romantic, is it? Can you imagine? I mean, the typical Hollywood scene, you know, you know what would happen all night. And, and, and then in the morning, he'd probably give her a beautiful ring and sends her off. He loads her up with a sack of grain, <laughs> sends her home. I mean, I, I, somehow to me, and, and there's speculation about how much grain that was, but it was probably a fair bit. That is not romantic, folks. I mean, you can try if you like, but it's just not romantic. And it wasn't supposed to be. He would not go down the romance trail until after this thing had been settled in a way that gave the nearest of kin the right to do what 
was in the law. So she goes home and she reports to uh, Naomi. By the way, when Naomi uh, sees Ruth, she says to her, it's usually translated or paraphrased, how did things go? She really says, who are you? Who are you? Which, I don't know, the way I read that, it means, are you Mrs. Boaz or not? You know, that's, you know, what, where are you in this process? That's when Ruth explains the events and, and, and uh, passes on the barley. And by the way, it seems to me that that barley is significant in this process. I'm not sure I altogether understand. It may be a token of, of the care that will be given, not just to Ruth, but to Naomi, if indeed this process carries through. It seems to me that it's an evidence of his care and his desire to provide for Naomi, not just for, for Ruth in the process. And then you know that Naomi says, uh, relax, daughter. Uh, he's going to pursue this, and uh, he won't rest until it's done. And, of course, she was right. Okay, let's talk about some things for uh, conclusion. Naomi's plan is flawed to me. I don't think it's a very good plan. I, I don't think that it's the moral high ground. I think there are all kinds of question marks. But it does have its precedent. It has its precedent in Abraham uh, taking Hagar and producing a child by her, a shortcut. Uh, it has its precedent in Tamar uh, producing a seed for Judah in a way that was uh, deceptive but uh, effective. And as a matter of fact, it also has, a, a, I wouldn't want to put this in the same time frame, but, but later, it's interesting that in the book of Esther, you also see some things that aren't exactly moral high ground as well. Not to mention the case of Lot's daughters and the, the birth of uh, Moab, the first of the Moabites, that begins. So there's lots of instances where things have not always been on moral high ground, and I don't mean to say that justifies it. I'm just saying this isn't the first time you've ever seen it before in Scripture. Because God's, the completion of God's work is not dependence on the flawlessness of men. If it were, we'd be in a bunch of trouble. It's God's faithfulness in spite of, oftentimes, uh, our activities. Well, Naomi's motivation may have been pure, but her plan uh, was cutting too many uh, corners. I think I've already said that, so I'm going to pass by that. And I'm going to come to point C, the test of truth a word of exhortation concerning the counsel we give others. This it really struck me that, that what, how this story begins and how it carries out is all about advice that Naomi has given to Ruth. Is it not? And in and, and, and reality, the advice that she is giving is not the moral high ground. And, and as I think about my experience in, in ministry over the years, I, I think I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Some of the worst counsel I have ever heard is counsel that's come from Christians to other Christians. And generally speaking, that counsel is based on self-interest. I wouldn't put up with this. Well, I wouldn't settle for that. And, and the council is really saying, you act in your best interest. That's what you ought to do, girl or, or guy. You ought to act in your own best interest. 
and, and I have to tell you, godly counsel is calling people to take the moral high ground. And if we don't do it, friends, it isn't going to get done. We ought to be on each other like a duck on a June bug, saying to people, you need to do it right. You need to do it God's way. And there will be thousands of people who are lining up to give all kinds of other options. That is not our job. Our job is to call people to do it right. That's what Boaz is going to do with that near kinsman. He's going to give that near kinsman the chance to do what's right. And, and I was thinking about this as the test of truth. When I thought about Titus chapter 1, where it, uh, it says, To the pure all things are pure, it's a warning against false teachers. You know how you tell false teachers? One, they're looking out for themselves. Two, they're telling you to look out for your, them, yourselves. And second, Peter, what are false teachers like? They're full of fleshly indulgence. They use the flesh as the means to prompt people to do or not do uh, something that, that is, is obviously wrong. And, and they are appealing to the wrong things. And so I would say this. You want to know somebody who's telling you the truth? Listen to the people who are telling you the things you don't want to hear. Listen to the people who are calling you to actions that square with the Word of God and fly in the face of culture. That's, that's the test of truth, uh, a test of truth at least. And that's what Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 says. We ought to be stimulating one another to love and good deeds. That's what the church is about. The church is about encouraging one another to do the right thing. Now, I want to tell you, one of the great joys of being a part of this church, as long as I have, is the fact that there have been fellow elders who have always been with me in the sense of saying, and with each other, of saying, we need to do the right thing. I have never been in an elders meeting in all of these years. I have never been in an elders meeting where the council has been, let's cut a corner. Never. I have never had a discussion with an elder who said, I know that this is the best way, but. And I'm not saying that just of the elders. Many of you have been there over the years to encourage not only me, but other people. Take the moral high ground. That's what the church is about. And that I think we should learn. D, godly character is evident in ungodly settings. And surely this was. I don't see how you could say this was the most, this was the most conductive, conducive uh, circumstance. It wasn't. But it's in those circumstances. It's in ungodly circumstances that godly people stand out. And I would say hallelujah for Ruth and for Boaz. The providence of God in protection. God providentially worked in a way that the presence of Ruth on the threshing floor that night, which was perfectly pure and moral, was not known to anyone else because they would have assumed otherwise. God was involved in something as simple as where a man chose to lay down to sleep. Isn't that right? I mean, can you imagine, just, just pick it, something in your mind. Have you ever gone camping and you put your sleeping bags out and you know how that goes? And suppose that old Boaz had decided to sleep close to the other workers and he lays down and here's this rock right in the middle of his back. He just says, oh, man, I'm going over there. God providentially 
cared for Ruth and Boaz in the midst of these circumstances. Okay, shortcomings of shortcuts. Well, shortcuts in the Bible. Shortcuts seek to avoid pain and suffering, hard work, faith, and waiting. Isn't that right? Shortcuts are saying, I don't want to do it the hard way. I don't want to wait, Abraham says, so they have Hagar and a child. And we pay the price for all human history after that of the results of that. Making decisions that that either terminate or appear to pacify suffering, persecution, difficulty, work, waiting, whatever. It's taking the shortcut that seems to make life easier at the moment, but it isn't. Negative examples. Try Adam right from the start. Satan proposed a shortcut for Adam, and that is, here's how you can be like God, knowing good and evil. By the way, God said, they're like us. They know good and evil. Shortcuts. It started at the very beginning in creation. And all the way through, you see the Abraham and Hagar, the Lot and his daughters, Tamar and Judah, Jacob and Esau, stealing the blessing when God had already promised he'd get it. Shortcuts. And then there are the good examples. I was thinking about David and the threshing floor. Here's another threshing floor. The threshing floor of Aruna. Remember that? David had foolishly numbered Israel. God had brought judgment upon the people and then he had ceased and David was to offer a sacrifice and he needed a place to do that and he offered to buy the threshing floor of Aruna and Aruna said, man, you can have it. (laughs) A mighty warrior like David, I'd give him anything he wanted to eat too. David says, no, no shortcuts to worship. I won't do what doesn't cost me something to do in worshiping God. Here's the greatest one of all. Our Lord Jesus. The temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ by Satan there in the wilderness was the offer of a shortcut. All of these kingdoms will be yours if you just bow down to me. That's a shortcut around the cross. A shortcut around the cross. God does not expect us to take shortcuts because he does not take them either. If there was ever a time and ever a place where you would want a shortcut, it was facing the cross of Calvary, the wrath of God towards sin. But there were no shortcuts. And I would say to you, my friend, if you happen to be here in the hearing of my voice, when it comes to salvation, if God did not take a shortcut to provide salvation for you, you'd better not try a shortcut in finding salvation. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ. Good works, whatever the list is, those are shortcuts and they don't work. Okay, what are some shortcuts today? Well, I would, uh, I'd give you a few. One is just generally speaking, pragmatism. Pragmatism. Well, we really need to get this done. And so, pragmatism is saying, let's not do it right. Let's do it quick and easy. Some people would say quick and dirty. Think about this. Suicide is a shortcut. Is it not? For a Christian. (laughs) It's a shortcut for an unbeliever too, but you don't want to go down that trail. Suicide is saying, 
I don't want to endure the difficulties of this life. I know that because of the blood of Christ, I'm going to heaven. So I'm going now. Suicide is a shortcut, my friend. And it, like every other shortcut, is wrong. Divorce, in many instances, in many instances, maybe I should say most, divorce is a shortcut. It's a shortcut around forgiveness. It's a shortcut around endurance. It's a shortcut around doing what is right but painful. It's a shortcut. We ought not to do it. All right, I threw medication in there, and I I know I'm treading on really thin ice, but I'm just going to say, there are times when Christians need medication. I'm not talking about antibiotics here, folks. I'm talking about psychiatric medication. There are times that Christians need medication, but I'm saying to you as clearly as I can, sometimes we take medication as a shortcut for dealing with spiritual problems. And if that is the case, then it's a shortcut that's wrong. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to prescribe anything beyond that other than to say sometimes that's the easy way out. Sex is a shortcut. Uh, premarital sex is a shortcut. It's the fast and easy way to what God says comes through more complicated and painstaking processes. And uh, just this week, I've I've gotten email like this over the years, but people write me and say, well, isn't isn't marriage, a marriage certificate, just a piece of paper? I mean, isn't really the important thing that you love one another? And my answer was this week, no, marriage, according to Malachi, is a covenant, is a covenant. God puts covenants in print. And he holds to those covenants. Why is it that somebody who wants to be joined together for the rest of their life, why is it that they're not willing to make a covenant to that effect? And I think it's because they'd rather take the shortcut because it's an easy way out. I'm going to put one one last one on there. And I call that uh, secondhand study. You know, there are many, many excellent preachers There are great sermons online. You can download them on your iPod. And there are great commentaries. But there are also shortcuts, friends. Proverbs says that wisdom is like treasure that is buried in a field. And if we want it, we have to work for it. Let's not use the labor of other people as the shortcut around the labor God wants us to take. If it helps us do our work... That's excellent. If it does our work for us, it's a shortcut. And with that, I'll uh, close. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this text. Thank you for what godly people Ruth and Boaz were. How committed they were to principle. How committed they were to purity. What a wonderful thing it is to read this story and come away knowing they did the right thing. Father, there may be those today who are toying with some shortcut, one kind or another, that is wrong. Help them to do what is right and help us as fellow believers to encourage and counsel to do the hard thing, to take the high road. If there is anyone here who's 
thought that there may be some shortcut around the cross in terms of the way in which you will save, may they see it is Jesus only and trust in him. In his name I pray. Amen.